We are back in the race. You're about to embark on a race around the world. And fixing things up. Did the doorknob just come off? You know. Okay, that we can fix. I'm Jared Hall from Entertainment Weekly, and here's what to watch on Wednesday, January 5th. We're counting down today's top three must-see picks from TV and movies. But first, your entertainment headlines. Looks like Luke and Laura will have to continue their epic romance in the afterlife. In a shocking move, General Hospital has killed off Luke Spencer, the popular character who first came to Port Charles 44 years ago, portrayed by Anthony Geary. All right, so maybe it's not super shocking, considering Geary retired from the long-running soap opera still in production back in 2015, and Luke has existed almost exclusively off-screen since then. But for fans of GH, Luke Spencer's death marks the end of an era. Luke died as he lived off-screen. On the January 3rd episode of GH, Luke's widow Tracy Quartermain reveals to his former and eternal flame Laura that Luke's been killed in a cable car accident in Austria. Late night hosts can joke about COVID-19, but they can't escape it. On Tuesday, Seth Meyers revealed that he is the latest to contract COVID. In a tweet, Meyers wrote, quote, The bad news is I tested positive for COVID. Thanks, 2022. The good news is I feel fine. Thanks, vaccines and booster. We are canceling the rest of the shows this week, so tune in next Monday to see what cool location we will try and pass off as a studio. And Myers is not the only one in late night to get COVID. Jimmy Fallon revealed on his show Monday night that he and his daughters, 8-year-old Winnie and 7-year-old Francis, got it just before Christmas. Fallon says their symptoms were mild since he was vaccinated and boosted. The Tonight Show host also revealed that he had been scheduled to appear on Saturday Night Live moments before he received those positive test results. He was then escorted to a waiting area in 30 Rock with glass doors, which he shared a picture of, and you can see it at EW.com. And then, well, I'll just let him take it from here. So they put me in this room, right? So every office has a catchphrase from an NBC show, like from Cheers or something, or here's Johnny. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. The room I'm in is the What You Talking About Willis <laughs> That's zoomed in so you can see that. I can't. (laughs) That's where I found out. That's where I found out that I had COVID. Yeah, that was the room. That was the place where I found out. You can't write this. You can't make it up. You can watch his full monologue and hear more about all of that at EW.com. Jodie Comer will not be reteaming with Ridley Scott to explore another chapter in French history after all. Comer has exited Kitbag, Scott's upcoming historical drama centered on Napoleon Bonaparte for Apple TV+. She cites the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and scheduling conflicts. Shortly after news of Comer's exit broke, Scott announced that The Crown and Mission Impossible star Vanessa Kirby will step in to replace Comer as Josephine. And the show will go on for the Golden Globes this year, but without the usual glitz, glamour, and champagne-fueled revelry. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association has revealed its plans for the 2022 ceremony, which the group previously said would be a stripped-down affair. Most notably, the event will focus on announcing winners and highlighting the HFPA's philanthropy work while foregoing any live audience, red carpet, or media presence. 
The 79th Annual Golden Globe Awards will take place Sunday, January 9th in their usual location at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills. Since media will not be present, it's still a bit unclear how winners will be conveyed to the public in real time. For more on all of these stories, plus other news, reviews, interviews, and more, head on over to EW.com. Now, Orange you Glad, it's time for our top three picks, starting with number three, The Real Housewives of Orange County. We left the OC Wives on quite the cliffhanger two weeks ago as Heather confronted Shannon for gossiping about a lawsuit against her husband, Dr. Terry Dubrow. Tonight's episode sees Shannon apologize to Heather again, but it's not exactly smooth sailing from there. Here's a clip from the episode. I will defend my family to the end. I thought you and I were good, and it was just like a big you. It felt, I'm sure, devastating. Like, it's horrible. I'm, I am horrified about all of this. I'm just being honest. I don't know that I trust you 100%, but I am willing to forgive you. I, I, I screwed up because I'm a loyal friend. I made a, a lot of lot of laps of judgments, and I apologize for that. Shannon is not crying because she feels bad. Shannon is not crying because she has remorse. Shannon is crying because she got caught. I made a huge mistake. I'm sorry. Thank you. I appreciate that. Don't f- my family. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Wow, that is quite intense, and the atonement doesn't end there, as Heather asks Shannon to apologize to Terry as well. Nor is all of that the only drama playing out this week. Elsewhere, Dr. Jen's attempt to smooth things over with Noella unexpectedly blows up, leaving Jen reeling. And as Gina and Heather bond during a day at the racetrack, Gina warns Heather about more negative comments Noella has made. Ah, what a glorious mess. You can see how it all plays out on The Real Housewives of Orange County tonight at 9 on Bravo. Now prepare to be amazed by our number two pick, The Amazing Race. The Globe Trotting Competition Series is finally back for its 33rd season, which began production before the pandemic in February 2020. After the longest pit stop in the show's history, season 33 made it over the finish line this past fall. Now, tonight's two-hour premiere will see 11 teams take off from their homes and travel to their first destination, London, with contestants including a couple of YouTube influencers, some singing cops, and a pair of radio show hosting twins. They'll face the Amazing Race's usual assortment of mental and physical challenges. Here's a clip from the premiere with the contestants trying to assemble pieces of paper into a completed picture. We are ready, we are ready. Where, where do we need to go? Let's flip them all over. Yes, this makes, this makes something. Oh, it might be its own clue. It's the worst possible puzzle ever because there's no clear, there's nothing to look at. This is together. I got it. You are so hot right now. <laughs> You're like a beautiful mind right now. With John Nashing, my ass off. I have really bad ADHD, but there's this thing called hyperfocus where when there's a task right in front of you, you can really commit like every single bit of your brain to it. It's kind of a cool superpower that comes out of a disorder. We're there. We're there. 
Ah, let the games begin. The Amazing Race finally returns tonight at 8 on CBS. It's trivia time. The Amazing Race host Phil Kogan almost missed a pit stop once when he was detained for two days in what country? China, France, or Ukraine? Stick around for the answer and our number one pick. What to watch? We'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back to EW's What to Watch. From Bridgerton Season 2 to new versions of The Lord of the Rings and The Time Traveler's Wife, highly anticipated movies and TV shows prove that Hollywood's love affair with adapting beloved books isn't slowing down anytime soon. And this spring, a new EW podcast will go inside some of the most exciting projects releasing this year, bringing entertainment fans inside what it takes to adapt rich stories from the page to the screen. Host and EW Senior Editor Saya Rankin is joining me today and the rest of this week to dig into the new podcast and specifically today, one recent adaptation that's already earning major awards buzz. Hello, Saya, and Happy New Year. How are you? Hello, Jared. Happy New Year to you, too. It's, it feels like a good New Year so far. There is lots of good movies and TV shows and there's new books coming out. I'm feeling hopeful in at least that one little area of life. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, when I was um, traveling over the holidays, I got to say the um, some of the bookshelves in the airport uh, were pretty scarce. So you could see like boxes of books they were waiting to be put back up there. So I was like, oh, this is a this is a good sign. Folks are uh, you know digging into still into physical books, even if of course books you can read on your tablets and stuff. But I don't know, I'm still a sucker for the physical copy. Me too. Me too. I do love an airport bookstore, even though I probably own everything in there. I still sometimes (laughs) like to have the experience of like picking it up by hand and bringing it on the plane. And they always have the Sally Rooney's, which I love. They sure do. Yeah, they absolutely do. I I saw a couple copies of her latest in there. All right. So let's talk about this book adaptations podcast. Um, First of all, tell me about the inspiration for it. Sure. So we wanted to do some sort of EW version of a book club. I know that everyone is like kind of looking for direction when it comes to what to read. But I think one of the best things that EW has is we have an in on all of the movies and TV shows. And we realize that, sure, there's a ton of like, there's a ton of adaptations out there. And if you look at all the movies and TV shows, they all have source material, but not all of the source material is also something that we really love. So if you look at like a House of Gucci or something, I wouldn't necessarily point people to the book. House of Gucci. Mm. But in this upcoming year in 2022 and 2023, even there's some really, really wonderful books that I personally was obsessed with that EW readers have been reading. And those are all going to be coming to screens, big and small. Um, So we kind of wanted to get a way for everyone to read the books together and then have something to look forward to as we all see the on-screen version and then kind of like pick it apart. What's good, what's bad, what we're surprised by, how they changed it and all of that. And that's how we 
came up with this idea. Not going to lie. I do love a good book club. And I'm definitely one of those people who I'm always looking for. Like, uh, I'll ask people like, eh, what's the last good thing that you read? Um, I found recently a file folder where years ago I would rip out the pages of EW from the book section and keep them so that I could reference that for like, oh, this is the next book that I should read. Maybe that's very nerdy of me, but uh, it was my go-to source. So um, I I'm glad that we're doing this because I personally have been turning to EW for many years, long before I worked here for that kind of stuff. Okay, so I feel like we need a drum roll here because we are going to unveil the name of the podcast. Saya, please take it away. I don't have the tongue work to do a full drum roll myself, but insert drum roll editors and it's going to be called Screen After Reading. Screen After Reading. I love it. Yes. And it makes so much sense because screen after reading. I mean, it's all right there in the name, everything you need to know um, about what this podcast is going to be. Um, you've kind of hinted a bit about this rise in adaptation. Studios are looking to greenlight more projects, um, particularly streamers is where we're seeing a lot of these pop up. Talk to me a bit about that and why you think we're seeing so many uh, of late. Yeah. And I think it's been a lot of kind of historically Hulu, I would say, has kind of cornered the market in the really good adaptations. And I think a lot of the other studios are starting to jump on board. Obviously, Netflix is getting into it. And A24 actually in this past year has optioned a lot of really good books. Um, I think one, obviously, just like having having the source material already there just gives them a leg up. But I think the other thing is you have a built-in fan base. And if you actually look at Reese Witherspoon, she's been kind of clued into this for a really long time, where if you can get people, especially if you're optioning a book that you've read and you really like before the book even comes out, then you have like kind of the year in the life of the book to get a bunch of people on board. They become fans of the book and then they buy right in to the casting process, to the you know set process. Like if you look at people, the way people are following the next Sally Rooney adaptation, conversations with friends, people were really excited to see who's going to be in the movie. They want to see like Instagram photos of the cast hanging out on set. And then they're, they're going to be like eyes peeled um, when first looks and trailers and all of that start coming out. And I think um, we're also getting into a really good place where a lot of like really good literary works are becoming adapted for a while. It was a lot of kind of just the book version of a blockbuster. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. Dunes, the Hunger Games, that right. kind of stuff. And now people are adapting like really wonderful like character studies and kind of smaller stories, if you will, like big books, yeah. popular books, but the stories themselves are smaller and more intricate. And I personally, that's kind of where I thrive. I am right there uh, with you on that for sure. You know, it, some of these uh, adaptations, too, in recent years, we're seeing a lot of them going on to win awards. HBO, of course, with Big Little Lies, talking about Reese Witherspoon. That adaptation got 21 Emmy nominations. Mm -hmm. It won eight of them. The Queen's Gambit got 18 Emmy nominations. Last year, it won 11. And now Netflix, their film, The Lost Daughter, has critics talking about potential 2022 Oscar nominations, which are uh, coming up fairly soon. And we're looking at uh, potentially their best actress for Olivia Coleman and best director for first time feature director Maggie Gyllenhaal. What do we know about why she latched on so much to this source material? So the book, The Lost Daughter, is an Elena Ferrante novel. And mm -hmm. a lot of people, I mean, a lot of like women in literature, women in film, all of that, like have really glommed on to Elena's work. It's so, you want to talk about like small story, but very character driven. That's, mm -hmm. that is her in a nutshell. 
And some of her more popular books um, are the Neapolitan novels. That's what My Brilliant Friend was that was adapted on HBO. And I think from what Maggie has like talked about, and she mentioned this to our uh, critic Leah, which we'll hear a little bit about later, she just kind of loved like how haunting and ethereal all of her books are. And it really, I think they're really interesting stories, but they also leave a lot of room for the director to make it their own. Whereas some of the other like books, again, to keep talking about Dune, like it's so intricately told the the settings and everything it's kind of the director just making that come to life but in something like the lost daughter there's a lot of room for maggie to really work with the story and it's also just really cool elena ferrante is totally anonymous no one knows who she is she's very mysterious she i mean quite frankly might not be one she could be like that group of guys who just got kind of added as pretending to be a woman author hopefully she's like a really cool woman that would be great (laughs) but yeah it adds kind of a cool mysterious factor and you get to feel like you really win the adaptation because another thing to point out is a lot of these authors who have these like really big special books they don't have to allow their work to be adapted they're kind of being courted by directors and by filmmakers and production companies and maggie i have a feeling was kind of attracted to that courting process and it worked Mm -hmm. yeah indeed and uh you mentioned leah uh, one of our critics here at ew leah greenblatt covered this movie she uh spoke with a lot of the women that are involved in this movie for our Around the Table series. Yes, she did. Um, so Leah covered it, and I believe Leah was one of the first people in, definitely the first person at EW and one of the first people in the industry to get a look mm-hmm. at um, this movie. And so she screened it back at in the Telluride Film Festival. Gosh, when was that in September? And so she was lucky enough, she sat down um, with the cast and crew of the movie. um, And specifically, like what she started out asking about was talking to Maggie about how, what it was that drew her to this book and how she was kind of able to win the adaptation rights and then what the process was of working with Elena while she stayed anonymous. Because I think that adds like an interesting element is she has to have a correspondence and a working relationship with someone whom she's not allowed to know who she is or have their real name or anything. But she's, I will say, she does have her email address, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> uh, love that. Uh, maybe, maybe Maggie, I don't know. Maybe she knows who she is. Maybe she signed an NDA. <laughs> anyway, I uh, have a listen to part of that conversation. Maggie, this is your directing debut, but initially you had wanted to adapt another Elena Ferrante novel. Is that true before you found this one? Well, I I had read um, the Neapolitan novels, which were already being made into an HBO series. Um, And yeah, I guess that's sort of true. I mean, I read Days of Abandonment, which is a brilliant book. And originally, yes, I reached out to Elena Ferrante's publishers about that book. And they said that book has been made into a film um, in in Italy, but would you consider this one? And I read The Lost Daughter in a weekend and I thought, yes, I would consider this one. And in fact, I think it's a better match for something cinematic. So yeah. And Elena Ferrante said yes. And then she wrote a whole essay in The Guardian about you making the movie and how she wanted you to make exactly the movie you wanted to make. So no pressure. Yeah, she um, she she did a lot of really. I mean, I don't know who she is. She's anonymous, so I've only communicated with her through email. But everything she's done has been like kind of secretly somewhere in the cosmos supporting me. So first, I asked her for the rights to the book, and she and I said I wanted to direct it, um, and she agreed and gave me the rights. And she said, if you don't direct it, this contract is void. 
So she made it impossible for me not to direct it, which was um, at the time really a vote of confidence that I think I needed and I took. And then, yeah, while I was adapting, there's this like thing comes out in The Guardian because Ferrante does a bi-weekly or weekly piece in The Guardian, at least she used to. And nobody, I, I didn't, it was like just my British friends just emailed me in the morning like, oh my God, look at your <laughs> email. And it was from Ferrante basically saying, as difficult as it is to let go of your own piece of work and let something be kind of like beyond the parameters of what you imagined, She's like, I know that this will only be worth anyone's time if Maggie Gyllenhaal <laughs> makes, makes this hers. And so she said, like, if she said, if it were a man, that she wouldn't feel quite the same way. But that because I'm a woman and an artist, that she knows how important it is, it, it was for me to express myself. And that just came through the ether to me. Love that. And there is more where it came from. You can watch that entire Around the Table video at EW.com, also on YouTube, and you can check out The Lost Daughter on Netflix. Our thanks to EW's Lee Greenblatt, who spoke with The Lost Daughter cast and filmmaker. Saya will be back tomorrow with an exclusive interview with the star of HBO Max's Station Eleven adaptation, Mackenzie Davis. Thanks, Saya. Thank you. And now, folks, today's number one pick is, it's a bit of a fixer-upper. It's the cable debut of Magnolia Network. Chip and Joanna Gaines are bringing their stable of content to cable TV with a whole channel dedicated to their original series, replacing DIY Network on your dial. Magnolia's lineup will include many of the shows that have recently been available to stream on Discovery+, Plus, including, among many others, Magnolia Table, which sees Joanna Gaines sharing her favorite recipes, Restoration Road, in which carpenter Clint Harp travels the country in search of historical structures that need restoring, and Fixer Upper Welcome Home, a continuation of the Gaines' beloved renovation series featuring more stunning home transformations. Here is a preview of that. Did the doorknob just come off? You know. Okay, that we can fix. This project has got some major surprises. Oh, crud. Oh my God. Ew, I've never seen anything like this. Demo Day is one of these things where it never gets old. When you Today. talk about demo, I mean, that is a turn on. Oh, gosh. I wanted this room to feel like a hug. Man, babe, I like it. Do you like the idea of this all being open? I've never owned a home before. We are so excited. This makes the whole space feel complete now. It's amazing. Not gonna lie. We sure missed those two in action. You can tune into Magnolia Network right now. Check wherever you previously found DIY Network through your cable or satellite provider. And lastly today, the answer to our trivia question. The Amazing Race host Phil Kogan almost missed a pit stop once when he was detained for two days in what country? China, France, or Ukraine? The answer is Ukraine. During the show's 10th season, Kogan was held up at Ukraine immigration and was only released through the help of the U.S. ambassador to the country, who luckily happened to be a huge Amazing Race fan. Well, that is our show for today. We will have more news and must-see picks for you tomorrow, so be sure to follow or subscribe to What to Watch 
so you don't miss our daily recommendations, more of which can be found at EW.com. I'm senior editor Jared Hall. You can find us on Twitter at EW and at Jared Hall. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. What to watch. Today's episode of What to Watch was written by Tyler Aquilina, edited and produced by Joshua Heller, hosted and produced by Jared Hall, and executive produced by Shana Naomi Crockmall.